You can't talk about art history without seeing the impact Catholicism has had on art and the impact that art has had on Catholicism. It's time for our monthly art history lesson with Charles and Amanda Shepard from the Fort Wayne Museum of Art. This is Kyle Hyman. I'm here at the Fort Wayne Museum of Art with Charles and Amanda Shepard here for my monthly art history lesson. It's been fun, hasn't it? It has been, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Glad you're here. Well, for the month of November, I thought we could talk about the saints. Seems like a good time to do that. And specifically, we're going to talk about some martyrs and the art that has been made to uh, represent their lives and to remind the faithful throughout the centuries of their their great sacrifice for the faith. We've been talking for months now about how art was used by the church to counteract the effect of Martin Luther's teachings and the beliefs of his followers. And he went after so many of the beliefs that Catholics have held dear since the time of Jesus and the earliest um, apostles. Especially, he went after relics and specific practices and holy sites that were connected to the church, mm -hmm. um, claiming that he was bringing to light the teachings of the true church that had been obscured by the Pope uh, and faulty human doctrine. Just to illustrate the point, John Calvin later said that relics were an abomination. So, faced with that, the, the church throughout the centuries has revived our special appreciation and devotion of relics. Just a little bit of background on where all this is coming from. In 1578, workmen in Rome stumbled upon the entrance to the Christian catacombs with thousands of tombs, um, had been lost since the ninth century. Hmm. And what they found was that they were adorned with hundreds of paintings and art. And this sort of bolstered the early church's belief in relics and their importance. So it was an important response to Martin Luther saying that you know relics are uh, superstitious and they're they belong in the attic of the church and should not be brought out again. And among the workmen was this lawyer and sort of amateur archaeologist Antonio Bosio, who published a definitive guide to the catacombs, complete with illustrations. So huh. that was an important visual tool, uh, like a map. Yeah, sort of like an encyclopedia. Okay. Yeah. What he found, he found graves that were clustered around martyrs. So the thought is, if I'm buried next to a martyr, that's powerful intercession for our day of judgment. Oh. Yeah. So not that they were martyred together, but no. that you wanted to be right, in close right, proximity. As close right, as possible. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. I don't know how many martyrs are actually there, but uh -huh. what he found were that there were these clusters of tombs around martyrs and many of their tombs were adorned with paintings, illustrations from scripture, including books that were expunged from the Protestant Bible. Uh -huh. <laughs> so in 1599, another important discovery was made, the incorrupt body of St. Cecilia, who in the third century was beheaded for refusing paganism. She died a virgin and converted many hundreds even after her attempted beheading. Um, she was beheaded, but 
the job was botched and she bled for three days until she died. Hmm. So in 1599, her tomb was opened again and her body was found intact. And the artist Stefano Moderno was charged with making a sculpture of Cecilia because Cardinal Paolo Emilio Sfondrato was arranged to have a church built in her honor and he arranged to have the sculpture placed at the main altar of the church. Hmm. And we'll describe the sculpture now. It's beautiful life-size marble sculpture modeled on her actual body mm-hmm. and she's laying peacefully in a light robe except her head is is twisted pretty severely and there's a, a thin slice mark on her neck to signify how she was killed mm-hmm. um, but I think the two most important parts of the sculpture are that her arms are outstretched in front of her and the position of her fingers, signify that she died for the faith her Mm. her right hand is outstretched with three fingers which is Mm -hmm. a symbol for the trinity and then her left hand show her index finger and her thumb which signify to christ's dual nature Mm -hmm. of god and man so this sculpture is in contrast to a lot of the art of the time it would, it's a lot different than the the drama and the high emotion of maybe Caravaggio mm-hmm. it's also in contrast to the mannerists that would have exaggerated her features and might have extended her neck or made her more voluptuous than she was she really looks true to life um, she's not wearing excessive clothing anything like that it is really about her position with her neck exposed it really should affect the faithful in a way and make them speechless yeah well i mean even with the face being down against mm-hmm. the ground mm-hmm. it's a it's kind of a humiliating mm-hmm. position mm-hmm. yeah to be in i totally agree almost like really knocked down and mm-hmm. kicked down and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. humble mm-hmm. and the selection of this artist moderna it's interesting, too, because he's only 23 years old and not yet done uh, a major commission, but he's selected because he and his brother, who both grew up in the work, sculpture workshop of their uncle, huh. and one of the things that the uncle taught was not only that they would have their own work, but they were great copyists of the antiquities. And the younger brother was the better copyist. So when they picked him for this particular commission, they calculated that his skill was dofold. He had his own creativity, but he had his copyist abilities so that they could tell him, in a sense, this is what this has got to be to convey what we need conveyed, and he could produce that. Mm -hmm. And as Amanda was suggesting, some turmoil in the art world stylistically at this point because there, there'd been a, a push toward realism over idealism. Mm-hmm. Realism over beauty is what they said, but essentially, the, the, let's get rid of the ideal and make people more normal, whether they're saints or not, but let's bring some normalcy to this such that they're, they're actually heightened realism. And then there's the craziness of upcoming Baroque movement and within two years of Mardano's death this kind of work wouldn't be made at all anymore it would be more like Bernini and you know 
you'd wear the shroud would be flying into the mm-hmm. air and have a thousand wrinkles in it and everything would be overdone to the point like did exaggeration to the point where do you really get this are right, you really right. getting this and <laughs> like this, her this face part. looking up to heaven yeah. and yeah. being very majestic exactly and, yeah exactly mm-hmm. and if you think uh, the way that uh, saint Therese was handled by bernini that's exactly uh huh. the way that was pro- projected this is a special moment in art history and as a result even though he went on to do other great commissions this is the one piece that made Moderno's reputation. Hmm. Upon the finishing of this piece, he was immediately elected into the academy, a head teacher at 24 years old, uh, highly respected. And yet, maybe 10 years later, his star fades because he's not doing the hottest, latest thing. Hmm. And and so in a way, he's unsung. So for him to have done St. Cecilia and her particularly horrible story, and then for him to rise to the moment, capture that, and then disappear himself is really, it's a poetic moment. Yeah. And so a lot of the the bishops and high-ranking clergy in the church were tasked with reviving the earliest churches with more art, especially in honor of the martyrs. And um, we'll take just a minute to talk about a painting that is in the... Church of Santa Pudenciana. This church is from the fourth century. It is thought to be the earliest place of Christian worship in Rome. And this painting shows the sisters Prosides and Pudenciana, which were baptized by St. Peter. Hmm. And the painting is the sisters collecting the blood of the martyrs. And so we have two sisters who are dressed nicely. They're painted with a lot of life in their face, but they're handling the bodies of martyrs Mm -hmm. and they are collecting their relics and they're actually sort of collecting the blood, mopping it up and putting it into a well. And the painting goes deep into the background where we see instruments of death on a, a dark and shadowy hill, reminds us of Calvary in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, we see bodies throughout the landscape. But then we are relieved a little bit from this scene with the angels um, floating on clouds, uh, opening up heaven with flowers. Mm-hmm. And watching over them. Watching over them. So we get a sense that light and life is being poured out onto this scene. And the artist has really made the bodies of these martyrs look dead and look lifeless. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a sharp contrast between how he's handled those figures, which they lack color, they lack... Um, any animation in their bodies. And then the sisters are very tenderly um, cradling their heads, cleaning up their blood. And um, they look really peaceful about it, really serene. Hmm. And so this hangs in that church and would sort of unabashedly claim that the blood of the martyrs are an extremely important part of our faith. Right. Well, and getting back to the idea of relics, the whole collecting the blood of the martyrs and stuff, realizing like we recognize this kind of heroic virtue mm-hmm. of these people. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this isn't just something that you 
discard or no. or let sit and rot, no. but something you it's not a story to be forgotten. Right. And yeah, yeah. I think that's an important point. These people did not die in vain. And judging by the the look on the sisters' faces, especially the sister on the left, she's holding the head of a man and yeah. she's holding it like it's her own child mm -hmm. so tenderly she, you know she's sort of smiling lovingly down onto this man's body um and the sisters have a lot of light on their faces their their clothes are clean and unsullied and yet they look like they're ready for service you know mm -hmm. their, their shoes are off they're getting their hands dirty yeah. um you know wearing head scarves uh it's there's a lot going on in this painting is really wonderful all right well another great art history lesson for us and i'll have links to these images in the show notes so people can look that up as well it really are some amazing pieces of art so encourage people to check that out sure what's going on at the museum these days really fascinating show of optical art that's through november 24th and come see the show because the artist painted everything with one arm he actually lost the use of his right arm in a labor camp around the time of World War II, and he painted these really amazing geometric optical art paintings. Not quite optical illusions, but you will have an optical experience. The color and line will, will play with your eyes in ways you've never seen before. And I, it's hard for me to believe that it's painted it to is. begin with, much less with one arm. Masking, <laughs> like yeah, he, used, he so invented amazing. his own masking tape cutting machine huh. to get the exact width of line that he wanted. So, you know, people say, oh, it was done with the computer. No, he painted these in the 70s and yeah. 80s. He did not use the kind of computer, there wasn't a computer. It looks of. like it's moving and so, yeah, it's really cool. The, yeah, the colors look like they're moving. It's really, and, and if, if you have optical troubles, I would even give you a mild warning that, <laughs> I mean, I, my eyes water. I yeah. feel a little dizzy looking at some of the paintings. So it's a good show, though. All right. Check it out, fwmoa.org and on social media as well. Yeah. All right. Thank, Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you.